how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Deuteronomy Part 1. If ever you get the opportunity to go into a synagogue, look around for a very large cupboard at one side, usually covered with a curtain or a veil. This is a tiny model of one. And if you were allowed to and you opened the cupboard, you'd find inside some scrolls wrapped up usually in beautifully embroidered cloth. And these little scrolls would be the law of Moses. The first five books of the Bible, what the Jews call the Torah or the instruction. And here I've got it all beautifully printed out in Hebrew, tiny, tiny print. But each scroll was named after the first words on the scroll because that's how they identified them when they pulled a scroll out of the cupboard. They would unroll just the first little bit and see which one it was. So that, for example, the book of Genesis, what we call Genesis, is called In the Beginning. And the book of Deuteronomy is simply called The Words, because the first phrase in the Hebrew is, these are the words, and the first noun is words. So it was called simply The Words. That's what the rabbi would call it. But we call it the book of Deuteronomy. When the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, they had to think of a new name for this book. And they made up this name Deuteronomy from two words in the Greek language. One is the word deutero, which means second, and the other was the word nomos, which means law. So that from then on, this fifth book in the Bible was called Deuteronomy, second law. And if you've read it through, then you'll notice that the first most striking thing about it is that the Ten Commandments appear in this book as well as the book of Exodus. The law comes twice. In Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5, you've got the Ten Commandments. And that's what gave the book its name, the second law. Now, why should these Ten Commandments be repeated a second time? And not just the ten, but there are altogether 613 laws of Moses, which he gave to the people of Israel. And they're repeated, Exodus and Deuteronomy. Why? Well, the clue lies in the book of Numbers, which tells you that the book of Deuteronomy was written 40 years after the book of Exodus. And that during those 40 years, an entire generation died. All the adults who came out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea and camped at Sinai and heard the Ten Commandments the first time, they're all dead. Because they broke that law so quickly that God said, you will never get into the promised land. You've got to wander around the wilderness for the next 40 years until all of you are dead. And so an entire generation has disappeared. And the new generation were only kids, they were only little children when they crossed the Red Sea and when they camped at Sinai. Many of them would hardly even remember what happened when their fathers came out of Egypt. And so now a new generation has to hear this law all over again. 
a new generation must enter into the covenant with God. And this happens to us too. Our children must enter into the covenant we have with God for themselves. Because God has no grandchildren. And you can't inherit these things. You have to enter into God's promises yourself. Your parents may have been in the covenant, your grandparents. You may trace a family tree right back, but that doesn't bring you in. And so Moses had to go through it all again. There were actually three people and only three still surviving from the Exodus days. Joseph, sorry, Joshua, Caleb, and Moses himself. Joshua was now 80 and Moses was 120. So he is facing the need of an entirely new generation who didn't make that covenant with God who didn't say, we will. It was a marriage service at Sinai. And they said, we will, to God. God told them the conditions under which he wanted them to live, how he wanted them to live, and they said, we will. But they didn't. And so they'd forfeited the whole thing. Now there's another crisis too. It's not only the next generation but they have moved in space as well as time and they are now camped on the east side of the Jordan River. And so they're about to go into the promised land and this is a second crisis because they've been on their own in the wilderness. Now they're facing a land that's already occupied by enemies and this produces the crisis. And above all, Moses is not going to go in with them. He also has forfeited his right to go in. He's 120 and he knows he's got one more week to live. God has shown him that, that he's going to die in just another week. He's got one week left with this new generation of the children of the people he brought out of Egypt. And he's going to tell them, the whole thing all over again. Furthermore, they're actually going to see the miracle of parting the water all over again. Not the Red Sea this time, but the Jordan. It's almost as if God is saying, I'm going to have to start all over again. I'm going to have to show you my mighty hand in dividing a river so that you can go into the land. And this is how you're to live once you get in. I've done a little very rough sketch to show you the kind of geographical situation. It is rough, isn't it? I'm sorry. But let me try and explain it. That greeny blue bit is the Jordan River, surrounded by trees. That's called the Jordan Jungle. That's where the lions and the bears lived in the Old Testament times. And the River Jordan meanders through that little bit of jungle to the Dead Sea. This valley here is the deepest crack in the Earth's surface. It goes right down through Africa, the Great Rift Valley, but it starts in the Promised Land. And this part of it is about 1,000 feet below sea level. You can actually get a pilot's license if you can borrow a plane and fly down there. You get a license saying you've flown below sea level in an aeroplane. But there it is, this deep crack. And there are mountains either side. On this side, the mountains of Moab, and Mount Nebo here where Moses will die. And he will die sitting against a rock on the top of Mount Nebo, looking across this valley to the hills of the Promised Land. 
but he would never get in. Here is the camp of Israel when Deuteronomy was spoken and written with the tabernacle in the middle and they're just over the river from the first city they'll have to conquer, Jericho. That's down in the valley too. Further up in the hills is Ai and Shiloh and Bethel. But on this side of the hills of Judea, they would only see wilderness. They'd only see desert because it's in the rain shadow. And it really is barren and empty. All the rain drops on the other side of the hills, on the Mediterranean side. And that is green. You can just see a little bit of green at the top. But from there down to Jericho is just barren wilderness and desert. There's a valley going up towards Jerusalem. Uh, Wadi Kelt, I've walked right down from Jerusalem down to Jericho one day through that valley. It was a weird experience, so quiet and deserted. At the top of the valley is Mount of Olives and Jerusalem is just the other side. The other thing you need to notice is that on the horizon further north are two peaks. Mount Ebel on the north side and Mount Gerizim on the south side. They are going to have to gather at those two mountains and repeat the covenant of God. And Moses tells them when they get in, they must stand, the people must stand between the two mountains and then some must stand on one mountain, one on the other and must shout the blessings and the curses of the covenant. Now the significance of this is that God brought them through the Red Sea first and then made the covenant at Sinai. He didn't tell them how to live till he'd saved them. He redeemed them first and set them free first and then he said, now this is how you are to live. That's the pattern of the whole Bible. God first of all shows us his grace by saving us and then he says, now in gratitude, this is how you should be living. So, this new generation, we're going to see God rescue them and take them through the Jordan, which at that time of year was in flood and impassable. But what would happen would be that the meandering river in flood, further up the valley, would undercut a bank and the bank would fall in and temporarily dam the river for a few hours. That's how God would do it. And to get them across, that's what God must have done further up the river so that the bank caved in and dammed the river for a few hours to enable them to get across. Having seen that miracle, they must then go on to their equivalent of Mount Sinai and repeat the blessings and curses of the law. Once again, we see this. God acts first and then he tells us how to respond to what he's done for us. So it's a kind of repeat performance at the end of 40 years for an entirely new generation. Do you follow me? That's the background of Deuteronomy. And it's written and spoken in this camp here, this side of the Jordan, while Moses is still alive and still with them. There are certain key phrases in the book of Deuteronomy which occur nearly 40 times. One is, the land the Lord your God gives you. Time and time again, they are reminded that this land they're going into is a gift, an undeserved gift, because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If you go into London to the Royal Exchange building, you'll find that written in stone above the Royal Exchange. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. When we argue about 
who owns this bit of land, we should start by saying God does. And he gives it to whomever he wishes. Paul said this in Acts 17 on Mars Hill in Athens. He said it's God who decides how much space and how much time a nation has on this earth. The earth is the Lord's and it's his right to give it to anyone he chooses. And this is one phrase all the way through Deuteronomy, the land the Lord your God gives you. But the other phrase that occurs the same number of times is go in and possess the land. And there's a profound lesson here. Everything you receive from God is a gift, but you've got to go and take it. Otherwise you won't get it. Years ago I was preaching and I put a bar of chocolate on the pulpit and I said, that's for the first child in the congregation that comes out and gets it. And from then on the children didn't listen to me at all. Their eyes were glued on this bar of chocolate and none of them moved. And finally a cheeky little boy ran up and he grabbed the chocolate and he took the, tore the paper off before he got out of the pulpit and he was chewing it as he came down the pulpit steps and every other child hated him. <laughs> they were so jealous of him. They were angry with him, but they could have had it. You see, salvation is a free gift of God, but you've got to go in and possess it. There's a cooperation here. God doesn't force it on you. He says, here's the land I'm giving to you. Now you go in and take it. And possessing it was going to be a very costly thing. They would have to fight for it. They'd have to struggle for it. So even though God gives everything to us, we have to make an effort to take it. That's how both the Old and the New Testament work. And we need to emphasize both. God freely offers you this, but you've got to reach out and grab it. It's yours if you'll take it freely. And that was the lesson I was trying to make with that bar of chocolate. Now then, was this land theirs to keep? That's an important question. And if you read Deuteronomy careful, carefully, you come to two conclusions. Number one, I call unconditional ownership. And number two, I call conditional occupation. And that is still the case even for Israel today. And we need to hold both those truths. Unconditional ownership. God says, I'm giving it to you forever. But that doesn't mean you can occupy it forever. The occupation of it is conditional. Now, if you got that, that's a very important distinction. It's yours unconditionally. You can own it forever. But whether you can live in it and enjoy it depends on how you live in it. And we're going to see that Deuteronomy message is very simple. You can keep the land as long as you keep my law. But if you don't keep it, even though you own it, I've given it to you, you will not be free to live in it and enjoy it. Do you understand the difference then between unconditional ownership and conditional occupation? The land could be taken from them, even though they owned it forever, because they were not living right in it. That is a very important distinction which the prophets of the Old Testament are constantly reminding them about. The prophets say you own this land, but you're not going to be able to go on enjoying it if you go on living this way. The covenant linked the land and the law of God. 
And still to this day, the promises of God are conditional. They're gifts to you, but how you live in those promises determines whether you can enjoy them. Now, one of the most interesting things about Deuteronomy is this. Hope you're not put off by all those big words. I'm sure that first word you probably have never heard of. It's in the Oxford English Dictionary. And it's a well-known term from ancient history. Whenever a king expanded his empire and took in other countries, he would make a treaty with the countries he conquered. And the treaty was called a suzerain treaty. If you've ever been to the island of Sark in the Channel Islands, you'll know that... Uh, the family that governs that little island is called a suzerain. Same word. And a suzerain treaty was made between a king and a country that had now come, become subject to him. And roughly speaking, the treaty would be an agreement that if they behaved themselves, he would protect them and provide for them. But if they misbehaved and didn't live the way he wanted them to, then he would punish them. And there are many, many examples that archaeology has uncovered from the ancient world, particularly Egypt. When Egypt conquered another country, the pharaoh would make a suzerain treaty with them, an agreement that they could still live with relative autonomy and freedom, but they had to live his way. And there's a pattern in these treaties which is very clear. And the interesting thing is that when you look at these treaties from the ancient world of a king who now had a new people subject to him, it's exactly the same outline as the book of Deuteronomy. Moses, when he was trained in the University of Egypt, must have seen some of these treaties and studied them. And here's Moses now presenting the covenant to the people of Israel in the form of a treaty. As much as say, the Lord is now your king, and you are now subject to him. And this is the treaty he is making with you. This is how you are to behave. And the pattern of the treaty in the olden days was uh, exactly as we have it on the board here. There was a bit of a preamble. This is a treaty between Pharaoh and between the Hittites or whatever. And then there would be a historical prologue that summarized how these this king and this people came to be related to each other. And after that little bit of history, there would be a declaration of the basic principles on which the whole treaty would be based. After that, there were detailed laws in the treaty as to how they were to behave. And then came sanctions, meaning rewards or punishments. What the king would do if they did behave properly and what he would do if they didn't. And then after that, they usually had a witness to sign it, but they would call on the gods to witness the treaty. And then finally, usually it was divine witnesses that were called. They would call on the gods in a religious ceremony to witness the treaty. And finally, there would be what we've called a provision for continuity. What would happen if the king died? and a successor would be named to whom the people would still be subject. And finally, all that would be settled in a ceremony when all these things would be written down and signed and agreed between the king and his new subjects. Now, isn't that fascinating? 
that all these treaties they've dug up are exactly the same shape as Deuteronomy. So that Moses, with his university training in Egyptian history, was presenting the covenant in a form that would be easily recognized by these people. They would know God is now our king. This is how we're to behave. And if we behave ourselves according to his laws, everything will be fine. Which raises the interesting question, what would God do if they didn't behave themselves? The sanctions. By the way, the basic principles in Deuteronomy are the Ten Commandments. Then we have a whole lot of detailed legislation. But what about these sanctions? What would God do to them if they didn't live the way he told them to? There were two things that God would do. One natural and the other human. The natural sanction was, if you don't behave properly, you get no rain. Now, the land they were going into was between the Mediterranean Sea and the Arabian Desert. And God controls the weather. And when the wind came from the west, it would pick up rain from the Mediterranean and drop it on the promised land. But if the wind came from the east, it would be the dry, hot desert wind, which even today is called the Hamsin. And when the Hamsin comes, it just dries up everything and turns the land into a desert. And God said, now that's one of my sanctions. That will be the first one I'll use. When you are misbehaving, no rain. And if you remember during Elijah's day, it didn't rain for three and a half years because things were getting bad. That was a simple way of God rewarding or punishing them. But if that failed, he would move on to something a little more fierce. He would use human agents to attack them. And what some of you may never have noticed in your Bible is this, that when God brought the children of Israel across the Jordan into the promised land from the east, he brought another people at the same time into the same land from the west. And he brought them from the island of Crete. And they were called Philistines. God says through Amos in Amos chapter 9, Did I not bring you out of Egypt and the Philistines from Crete? And so God actually brought a people who would prove to be the greatest enemy of Israel into the same land at the same time. But he settled Israel in the mountains or the hills and he settled the Philistines down on the coastal plain, what is now the Gaza Strip. And incidentally, Palestinians claim to be descended from Philistines. So God brought two people into the same place. And he said, if you behave yourself, there'll be peace. But if you misbehave, I'll tell the Philistines to come and deal with you. It is as simple as that. And all this is there in the Old Testament. Now, that's a strange uh, thing. Some of you may be quite surprised to know that God brought those two nations to live cheek by jowl in the same little corridor. And one would punish the other. Well, there would be immediate proof that God could bring enemies against people living in the promised land. Because he was going to have to drive out people already living there. The promised land was not unoccupied. It wasn't empty. It was full of all kinds of people, mainly Amorites and Canaanites. And they were already there. And God told the Israelites, you are going to have to drive them out to possess the land. 
Now, it's at this point that we've got to deal with an objection to the Bible, which is one of the most common objections. Somebody recently said that the church should ditch the Old Testament because it presents too many problems for Christians. That if we would ditch the Old Testament and stick to the new, most people's objections to our faith would go. Because most people's objections to what we believe center on the Old Testament. You don't still believe the world was made in six days, do you? You know what I mean? That's how people talk. As soon as you say you're a Christian, they go straight to a problem in the Old Testament. And one of the most prom common problems they go to is this. How can you believe in a God who told the Jews to slaughter all the people living in the promised land? It's immoral. It's unjust. It's not right. It's not fair. And this is a very real problem to many people. God brought the Jews in and he said, go in, kill everybody in there, clear them out and take their land. Now, is that a loving Heavenly Father? But there is an answer to it and we must really tell people the real answer. The answer is that the people living in that land deserved that. And God had told Abraham an amazing thing. You read about it in Genesis 15. God said, Abraham, I'm going to have to keep your family and their descendants in a foreign country for 400 years until the wickedness of the Amorites is complete. Now there you've got the moral answer to the immoral charge that people make against God. It wasn't. God waited 400 years for the people to get so bad that they didn't deserve to live there and that they didn't deserve to live anywhere on his earth. Let's get this clear. God's earth is for good people and his holy land is for holy people. That's the message of the Bible. And sooner or later, God does not allow wicked people to go on occupying his earth. He's very patient with them, waits a long, long time. But he had to wait until the wickedness of the Amorites was total. And only then did he say, now I can bring you out of Egypt and tell you to go and kill them off. And archaeology has revealed just how wicked they had become. And the more you know about Amorite society before the Jews got in there, the more you realize they didn't deserve to live. That it wasn't safe to allow them to live. If I just tell you that we now know that sexually transmitted diseases were everywhere in Canaan when they went in, it wasn't safe. Can you imagine? going to live in a land where everybody had AIDS. That's the kind of situation that they were facing as they looked across the Jordan. In fact, let me read just a verse or two from Deuteronomy to you. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No. It is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will use you to drive them out. Do you know, Winston Churchill in World War I became uh, 
Lord of the Admiralty. And that night he was very pleased with himself and uh, he got rather big in his thinking, I'm going to drive the Germans out. And he had the same feeling in the Second World War, but it's interesting, he stayed that night in a large country house in England and there was a Gideon Bible or a Bible by his bedside. And he picked it up and he read the verses I've just read to you. And God said, Winston Churchill, you're not going to drive the Germans out because you are better than them, but because they are wicked. And that changed Winston Churchill's attitude. It humbled him and it put him in his place. And he never forgot that uh, verse from Deuteronomy that he read in the Bible. The Israelites were told, you have to slaughter them, you have to drive them out. And there again, the question is why? Why didn't God destroy them first himself? Why did he make them do it? The answer is very clear. Because it was the way he taught them, others will come and do it to you if you live like they do. And what you've done to them, others will do to you. <clears throat> Now let's just go back from <clears throat> that to ask this. <clears throat> I could do with a glass of water sometime. Thank you. Um, you realize therefore that when you read Deuteronomy, you're reading a kind of mirror image of life in Canaan. Everything God tells them not to do is what was already happening. Do you follow me? So that if you read Deuteronomy carefully, you can build up a picture of what was happening in the land before they got into it. And I could summarize it in three words. Number one, immorality. There's so much in Deuteronomy about sexual immorality because that was precisely what was going on in the country they were entering. There was fornication, there was adultery, there was promiscuity, there was incest, there was homosexuality, there was transvestism, people changing clothes. There was buggery, sex with animals, there was widespread divorce and remarriage, and as I've said already, venereal disease everywhere. Now, Deuteronomy is telling them not to get involved in that kind of thing. The second thing I would say is injustice. We know that the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. Pride and greed were there, selfishness was there, exploitation, and who was suffering? The blind? And the deaf, people who couldn't get their share of wealth, and particularly widows and orphans were being very badly treated. Everybody was out for number one. And God said, you're not to do that. You're to look after the deaf and the blind. You're to look after the widow and the orphan. And the third thing that was characteristic of Canaan was idolatry. Occultism, superstition, astrology, spiritism, necromancy, this, uh, consulting the dead, and above all, fertility cults. Horrible things that worship Mother Earth, Mother Nature, and tried to produce fertility by sexual acts of worship. In the pagan temples in that land, there were male and female prostitutes. And when you wanted to worship, you went and you had sex with one of them. No wonder people crowded the temples. And all over the country were what the Bible calls Asherah or poles, which were simply phallic symbols standing up. And there's one in the middle of Basingstoke now, an eight foot high marble male penis. 
And this was everywhere in Canaan. And so occultism, superstition, spiritism was rife. Now all this, says Deuteronomy, had defiled the land in God's sight. It was his land and it was now totally corrupt. It was defiled, it was debased, it was disgraced. And God couldn't let it go on. When I read all this, I just find myself thinking, my, our whole world's going this way. What will God do? Well, that's really the background to Deuteronomy. Don't you go in and live like that, or I'll send somebody else to slaughter you as I'm sending you to slaughter them. It's not because you're good, it's because they're bad that I'm doing this. Now let's just look at Moses for a moment. He's facing a new generation. Their parents had failed. They'd forfeited the land promised to their forefathers. Now Moses looks at their children and he thinks, will they survive? Will they make it? Will they live right? Going in and facing all this? It's bad enough in the wilderness where the temptations were very few and far between. But now they're going in among it all. Will they clean it up? Will they be ruthless in getting rid of all this? Or will they compromise? And Moses knew he couldn't go in with them. He's about to die, has another week, and he's afraid for them. On the one hand, there's hard fighting to be done. It'll be a struggle to get in and possess the land. On the other hand, there will be strong temptations to overcome. Moses had led them all this way, and now he's got to say goodbye to them. And so, in the last week of his life, he spoke three times to them. The whole of Deuteronomy is made up of three long speeches, which must have taken the best part of a day to give. But there's an interesting thing. The style of Deuteronomy is both spoken and written. The spoken style comes across because it's very personal. It's warm. It's, it's, if you read it through, you've got to read it aloud to get the flavor of it. And when you read it aloud, you realize Moses spoke all this to them. And he's appealing to them. He's speaking like a father to his child, like a dying father to his children. Now, sons, remember when I'm gone. That's how he talks. And it's very warm and expressive and emotional. And yet, it is very well written too. Now, I don't think it's fanciful to think that during the last six days of the last week in Moses' life, he spoke and wrote alternate days. That on day one, three and five, he gave one of these discourses. But on day two, four and six, he wrote it down. Probably spoke from notes. Because he was well educated and could write and read. And uh, so I believe we're looking at three days which alternated with three days. Three days of speaking alternating with three days of writing. He would give a day-long speech, or perhaps a whole morning, and then he'd go back to his tent and he'd write it all out for them. And then he gave the written account of his speeches to the priests and said, keep that alongside the Ark of the Covenant. You must never forget what I've said. You must never alter one word of it. But you must keep it and read it every seven years to the people of Israel. And that's how the book of Deuteronomy came. We've got 
the three addresses he gave in the camp on the far side of the Jordan. The first is all about the past, looking back over the 40 years and beyond, looking back over what their fathers did. And then he comes to the present and he gives them the law all over again. He gives them first the basic principles in chapters 4 to 11 and then he spells it out in detail in chapters 12 to 26. Then the third and last time he spoke to them, just before he died, he provided for their future. Among other things he says, I've appointed Joshua to take over from me. I brought you out of Egypt, Joshua is going to take you in. And when you get in, you must go to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim and recite this law and take it upon yourselves. But God will bring you in. Well, now that's the outline of Deuteronomy. It's a very simple outline. And each address has two parts. I've tried to indicate that by the subheadings here. And we're going to go through these parts one by one. I've just time to introduce you to the First, where he looks back to the days when they came out of Egypt, their fathers, their parents. And uh, then he looks back at what went wrong. He's going to say, your fathers failed. Don't you fail. And in fact, I think it's better to leave it there and we'll pick it up in the next talk. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.